Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. There's a little, like, clicking or fidgeting happening. I don't know if it's... It might have been just me fidgeting with my pen. (laughs) I'm a fidgeter and a doodler. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. (laughs) My guest today has probably been in your ears before, and you don't even know it. Nick Sansano is a Bronx-born music producer and engineer who was part of the New York hip-hop scene starting in the late 80s and early 90s. He recorded and mixed records for Public Enemy, Ice Cube, Rob Bass, and Run DMC. He also produced albums for Sonic Youth, La Tigre, and many others, all the while trying to figure out how to afford life in New York City. He's now a professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, where he teaches the next generation of music industry professionals and sometimes steers them away from taking out exorbitant loans to study music. Nick shared his financial secret sauce to having a house and family in New York City on a professor's salary. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people about their money so the questions we all have about how much other people make and how their finances work can be a little bit less of a mystery. So, Nick, welcome to Other People's Pockets. Thank you. Happy to be here Um, so far. (laughs) Um, Where am I reaching you, by the way, right now? Um, I'm in my office, uh, which is located in Brooklyn at the uh, NYU Media Technology and Arts Building in downtown Brooklyn. Oh, cool. So I'd love to hear a bit about where you come from, and I'm wondering if you can tell me any memories about your childhood that have anything to do with money? A lot of my memories of childhood have to do with mm-hmm. money and the discovery of, <laughs> of the fact that we didn't have any and mm-hmm. <laughs> that having it made you have more options about where you lived and what you can do. My grandparents, uh, for the most part, are immigrants to New York City 
from southern Italy. And my father grew up in the Bronx and my mother grew up in East Harlem. And I would say that for all of my childhood, we were firmly lower middle class, working class type of family. And there were definite restrictions to our mobility and access to things. But of course, as a child, you don't realize that the whole world isn't that way. You know, you think that, you know, our restrictions are the restrictions of those around us as well. So you're not aware of your financial status as much as you are then when you get a bit older into your teen years. Is there anything specific you can remember happening that made you aware of those financial boundaries? Um, I think like where people lived and how they lived and, you know, seeing the, the homes of other people that I maybe went to high school with. I grew up in the Bronx for the most part, but by that time we had moved to northern New Jersey, like a working class, middle class, suburban area um, that bordered on other areas that were actually, that they were certainly not middle class and not working class. And so, you know, having that right next door or seeing friends who had these palatial homes or seemingly endless stream of money to do whatever, you know, that kind of, oh, I guess I'm a bit different. Mm -hmm. And did anyone close to you talk to you about money? No, not in a healthy way, anyway. <laughs> um, I think what do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, it was earn as much as you can, go to school, or, you know, it, it was all those very sort of broad stroke Like, things just happen. figure it out. Yeah, like. <laughs> you, you know, like, but not, you know, never really discussions about investing or understanding taxes or understanding different types of investments or, because it just wasn't a reality, I think, for most of the people around me. Like, they weren't really saving or investing for the most part, other than maybe the home they bought, because there wasn't that disposable income. And I think that a lot of the family just didn't have uh, an overview as to, you know, what it is you did with money or how you treated it or how you used money to grow wealth or all those sorts of things. Money was not so much a. It was, a, it was something you needed to survive as opposed to something you could grow. So starting out as a young person, um, can you talk about what interested you in music and what did you expect for yourself thinking about a music career? What attracted me to music along with just the connectivity to particular songs and recording artists was the social nature of music. I was a terrible student of music because you would play the instrument by yourself. But once I played the instrument with others, that completely changed my desire, you know, to, to actually rehearse and to actually be a part of something that took a lot of preparation and work. So I think that the social aspect of music in playing in bands and working with others and having other bands on the bill with you when you play. And that seemed very liberating. Uh, it seemed like in music there was a lot of autonomy and there was a lot of you make the rules as you go, mm -hmm. as opposed to falling into a conventional university route, and that kind of thing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And when you were going to college in the 80s? 80s. Uh, I was in college from 1981 to 1985. Where did you go to school? Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. So when you were in college in the 80s, what were you told about what your career path could be in the music industry? Well, that's when I kind of realized that there is more than one path. You know, you don't have to be a music like an artist. There were infrastructure people. There were producers and engineers and arrangers and business people and songwriters. And it was definitely taught me that there was a lot more there than meets the eye. And I do remember distinctly in college discussing in some classes, some of the more senior classes, money Hmm. in in terms of defining what success meant to you. Hmm. And were these actual classes focused on the business of being in the music industry or was it just a discussion that that popped up in in other classes? Um, It was a discussion that popped up in classes about music production. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was definitely a, a loose part of the curriculum because it was discussed a few times. Like, what are your expectations in terms of how much money do you want to make? What, How realistic are you about the potential for earning in your chosen field? You know, th- those types of discussion. How much money do you need to be happy? Um, mm. th- that was discussed. And I remember actually participating in those talks because, I mean, I still feel this way. And I felt that way back then, like having too much money is a burden Mm -hmm. uh, that you have to be ready for. And as Mm -hmm. long as I knew that I had enough to pay my rent and buy the food I wanted to buy and the clothes I wanted to buy and have enough to maintain my instruments, I was cool. I didn't have any grand aspirations of making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year mm-hmm. because I, I kind of felt afraid of it, you know, to mm. be honest. Wait, who gave you the idea that having too much money is a burden and that it's something to be afraid I of? Gave just... it, I gave myself okay. that idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that in someone you knew who had too much money or I'm curious where that came from? I think that it came from the fact that I always saw, I think when I saw somebody who had a lot of money, they worked a lot. Mm-hmm. And they were beholden to, beholden to something. Mm-hmm. I guess I never in my lifetime sort of experienced the, the, the entrepreneur or the independent sort of wealth maker, you know. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. 
Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. How did you actually get your start as a music producer? I left school not exactly knowing how I would, you know, work in the industry, like what kind of job I could get. And I sent out via regular mail, typewritten letters um, to literally hundreds of recording studios and jingle houses and production companies and just asking to become part of a staff at some sort of company that was established and churning out music and the recording of music and the creation of music. And that didn't really yield all that much opportunity, a couple of things here and there. So I just started bouncing around recording studios once I moved back to New York City, thinking that if I can get a job as an assistant or like, you know, just like a doing the grunt work at a recording studio, I could integrate myself into the business because there'd be musicians there and producers there and record executives and everything else. And so Ultimately, that led me to a place called Green Street Recording, where I could say I had my first real opportunity to prove myself and meet the people I thought that I would be meeting. So I became a staff engineer there and a staff mixer back in the day when studios had staff people. And then that's where I began as an assistant to this gentleman. His name is Rod Way, and he was doing a lot of the early hip hop of the day in New York City. And for some reason, he took me under his wing and I assisted him for a while. And, and he kind of handed the reins over to me. 
as I started to build confidence with the, the people that were coming to the studio. And that was primarily like the Def Jam crowd, the Bomb Squad, which is like Public Enemy, and all the different offshoots of what they produced and recorded. So I would say that that was what set me up to put me on the map a bit and get a bit of some professional clout. And then from there, I actually was able to convince noise rock bands, which was another interest of mine. I like noisy music. I like, I'm not a big pop music type person. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's when I started to work with bands like Sonic Youth and John Spencer Blues Explosion and, and other sorts of like alternative sounding music. And it was actually interesting because it was really all based on the work I had done in hip hop with PE and Ice Cube and, you know, artists like that. Mm-hmm. So at the height, like maybe your best year as a record producer, how much did you make in a year? Maybe like a couple of hundred thousand dollars, I think. I've mm-hmm. never exceeded um, that in um, in today's money. Um, si- since that really I'm talking about making the most money in a single year would have to be in the 90s just because there were a few records that really kicked back some substantial royalties. And those were French recordings that I was working on. You'd have to do the inflation rate, but like in the nineties to make a couple hundred thousand dollars was not uncommon during the course of, of, of a year. And I'm so curious about what you're saying that you, you very much had these frank conversations. It sounds like with your professors and other students about money and the the type of money you could maybe look forward to going forward in your career? Because now you're a professor. Are those conversations different now? Like, are you able to tell your students now the same things that you heard back then? Or what do you tell your students now when they ask you, like, look, like, what are the financial realities going to be for me as I try to make it in the music industry? They have shifted quite a bit because I think that when I was at Berkeley, it was the instructor sort of giving the reality of perhaps the limitations of the music business, that not everyone in it lived this very high-end lifestyle. Now, I think it's kind of the opposite, where I have to remind my students that you do have to make some money. Mm -hmm. There seems to be, not seems to, there is definitely like a backlash against capitalism Mm -hmm. uh, with the generations of students that I deal with. And they, they move more towards an art-first, creation-first, very idealistic view of things. That's wonderful. That's beautiful and liberating and really essential to, to make great art. But I think that uh, the talks that I have with my students about that and some of the other members of the faculty through our curriculum is that, hey, there's a you need to earn some money here, you know, and it's it's not a sin to earn money. And it's not, you know, you, you have to be realistic about how much it costs to survive and how much. So I think that there's the conversation, but like the roles have changed. Huh. And it's so funny that that's happening in the context of, of NYU in New York City, which is such an expensive place to live, that you have these students who are, you know, I don't know what It is that they're expecting, but, you know, they're in one of the most expensive cities in the world. I think New York is one of those places where money is just so in your face. Um, So it's interesting that you're saying that they are kind of like, I don't want to have to think about money. 
look, it's an affluent university mm-hmm. and it's an incredibly expensive university. And it's not across the board, of course, with our students, nowhere near across the board, but many of them come from affluent backgrounds. So you, you, yeah. you, come, you don't come with the stress of, of the exactly. money. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you're surrounded by money here. It's just, you can't avoid it. You know, everything is just so overdeveloped and expensive and, and even when you work, you get overpaid often, you know. So there's a different attitude towards it, I think, when you're not coming in with a sense of anxiety and fear about not having it. You, you kind of come in <clears throat> more like I was in a way, but from a different angle, uh, which was like you, you, you kind of want to push it out of your life. My my sense of of the industry that many of your students are trying to get into is it's really tough and there is really no guarantee of a big payday. And some of them might be taking out loans to be at NYU. And is that a good idea? And I'm, I'm just curious how open you are and what kinds of conversations you have with your students, especially the ones who might be struggling financially. I mean, it's one thing to tell them, look, you know, you need to think about this. This is a big decision. But is there any responsibility to say, I got to tell you, like, you don't have to do this. Like, there's there's other ways to be successful. Yeah. Uh, we actually say that, you know, yeah. um, like very openly um, yeah. in, you know, the open houses and when people yeah. visit and like presentations that we may make in public. It's like, look, that obviously the department is not even 20 years old and people have been making it quite well in the music business for a lot longer than that. You, you do not need to come here in order to make it. There has to be something about what we're offering that you feel really compelled to participate in. But it's not like if you don't come to our department, you're not going to be successful in the music business. And, you know, we're very clear about that. And we also are very lenient about people taking leaves of absence to do some professional work or to, um, or if they, you know, if they're having financial issues, um, we're very lenient about, oh, we'll take a couple of semesters off and then come back and we can appeal for some financial aid and things like that. So it's, it's a very open discussion that at times is quite awkward, but essential when your school costs as much as NYU does. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with students who don't know, and a lot of families who don't know, you have to tell them, you know, it's only right. And, and we do so as a department. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of value to saying why a very expensive university like this, like if it's not so important to you, if something we do here is that compelling to you, like, I'm sure you'll do well in another undergraduate program. At perhaps a state school that would cost a fraction of what it costs to go to NYU. I just want to be real about everything having to do with a life in the arts, your financial stability, your emotional stability, and this whole idea of it's a long-term business and you have to find ways to survive both spiritually and financially for the long run, not just a couple of years when you're young and pretty and everything comes to you easy because you're young and pretty uh but like how do you sustain this for 50 some odd years 
so yeah it's it's discussed it's no longer sort of this taboo thing where we ignore the fact that it costs you know an arm and a leg to come here and it could change the course of people's lives and their families lives so it has to be discussed we'd be irresponsible to not discuss it Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. How much money do you make now? Um, well, just because I don't want to say exactly because the NYU will probably get angry at me because then every other teacher is going to say, how come I don't make that? Um, but is that, um, is that like in your contract or is that just a, a known kind of dynamic in academia? It's a dynamic in academia that's changing, however, because now we are obliged not to post our salaries, but when you have like a want ad for a new right, position, that's right. we in have New York, to post yeah. everything. Yes. So let's say like the want the want ad for your job. <laughs> what what does it have on it? I can tell you exactly because um, 
for the first year position, like we're searching for a production instructor right now. And we have an ad going out, we're a search, a full search going on. And the, and the starting salary is $90,000 for uh, fall and spring semester work. So that would be a full-time faculty member who does things like admissions and academic advising and works on committees and things like that. Um, the starting salary for that in our department is $90,000. I've been here for almost 20 years and I'm the associate chair and the head of the production curriculum. So on top of my salary as a teacher, I get paid a stipend to be uh, for each leadership role. So in any given year, I would be happy to say that I make like uh, 150 to, I never make $200,000 here, but somewhere in that area for my role at NYU. I also have other income from royalties, which are drying up, to be quite honest, um, several thousand dollars every six months, as opposed to tens of thousands of dollars every six months. But they still come, believe it or not, recordings from even like as far back as the late 90s, they'll, they'll kick in, I don't know, $2,500 every six months, you know, which is like, I'll take it. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to send it back. <laughs> it's not changing my life, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it dribbles in. And, and one thing that I did early on in recognizing that the income was just so variable, being a music independent, that I started investing in real estate. I saw a few producers that I was working with as a young, younger kid. Um, I put together that many of them actually um, didn't invest all their money in things like recording studios and fancy cars and things like that, but actually in real estate, owning apartments or owning a building where they lived in one of the apartments and rented out the others. There was a pattern I noticed in a lot of music people who had this sort of very regular income pitted up against this very erratic income. Mm -hmm. And early on, I got myself involved in real estate, and I still am to this day. And I do have a steady income based on my real estate investments. I was noticing that on your LinkedIn profile, you have a real estate company, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. What do you own? And like, like how many buildings do you own? I'll give you the two-minute story. Um, I owned an apartment building in Brooklyn um, up until about two years ago. Um, it was six apartments, and it was uh, not a high-end building, but it was a rent-stabilized building in New York City. We have rent stabilization mm -hmm. laws. It wasn't rent-controlled. It was stabilized, meaning that the, the rents were, you know, for a one-bedroom apartment, maybe anywhere from 1200 to $1,700 a month. And... Uh, unfortunately, uh, we experienced a fire in my home. Um, we own our home here in New York City. We own a brownstone, my wife and I, and um, we had a fire that was pretty devastating. Mm, I'm sorry. And, um, we had to rebuild our, home, our whole home. So we wound up selling our building in Brooklyn and you know, reinvesting that money in a more modest home that we rent out up in like a vacation area in the Catskills and commercial property that is a sort of a passive investment in commercial property actually in Louisiana. Oh, um, where yeah. in Louisiana? It is uh, 
Cushota, Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. Why why Cushota, Louisiana? Because there was a, an opportunity where, you know, if you don't want to take the profits from a capital gains of selling like in a, a real estate investment like a building, I reinvested it into 1031 exchange yeah. to another another property and then was able to refinance that property, allowing me to pull out money to rebuild my home. So it was more advantageous for me to actually sell the building, put it into a more stable investment, which would allow me to pull out more money, loan-to-value money. So that's what I did. And I invested in a, a plot of commercial land that was that has been leased by different companies. And I think the current renting company is the Dollar General Corporation. That's a big company in presence in Louisiana. Um, I Yeah, I used to live in Shreveport as a oh, okay. reporter, so that's not too far from Cushada. So wait, but wait, I still don't understand, like of all places, I mean, you could have invested in commercial real estate theoretically anywhere. I was just looking for the best sort of return on your investment possible, like huh. what was based on the money I had. Yeah, yeah. And with those 1031 exchanges for those commercial properties, it's really a numbers game because I don't have to do anything there. You know, the the corporation that rents the space, they take care of the maintenance, they take care of the taxes, they take care of, of everything. You are essentially leasing them the land. So you don't have to be there. So you're you know? not really like a traditional landlord. Yeah. No, no, I don't have yeah. any involvement other than I speak with the, you know, some corporate office every now and again to make sure the insurance and the, the rent is a book, which they cover. But just to make sure that that's all being renewed and everything else and the, you know, that the taxes are being paid. So I'm really talking to a corporate entity as opposed to going in and visiting the shop and shaking. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the term CRE, bro? No, I don't. Commercial real estate, bro. It's like, I don't, there's, there's this whole really annoying scene on Twitter, like real estate Twitter and commercial real estate bros who are like oh yeah my latest deal was this blah 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 like um (laughs) i just um i was just thinking about that i don't know anything about commercial real estate but um but you're you're like a little tiny bit of a cre bro just a little bit yeah i guess i am (laughs) uh uh, i guess i always you seem you seem to know what you're talking about You talked earlier about growing up, you saw yourself as maybe lower middle class, working class. What socioeconomic class do you consider yourself a part of now? That's interesting. In certain parts of the world, I'd be very rich. In other Mm -hmm. parts of the world, I would be middle class. In certain states of the United States, I'd be very rich. In New York City, I am definitely middle class. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I grapple with that question, as you can see. <laughs> it's like it's just so relative to to what you're around and, and where you are. What's your net worth? So that's a difficult one, too, because it's like on paper, I kind of feel as though, oh, I have several million dollars, you know, just sitting there. But in reality, I have a lot of a lot of it is leveraged. So it's a very, it's it's a difficult question for me to answer, but I guess if we liquidated everything, we'd walk away with several million dollars, you know, three or four million dollars, but then to what end, you know? 
Still good to have it. I mean, it's not. Uh, No, believe me, I'm I'm (laughs) very fortunate, and I am I'm so happy to you know have that. And if a young person came to you and looked at your career and looked at the awards you have on the wall and everything you've done, and they said, "Okay, I want to have Nick Sansano's career," is that replicable? Yeah, it's totally replicable. We have students or. Uh, alums who have indeed gone well past what I've ever earned in music and Grammy Awards and all that kind of stuff, which I never got to. So it's totally still doable. And there's still money out there. You know, how it's spent and, and how it funnels through and who it funnels to, that, that's all changed. But the prospect of success still exists. And I would never say that you can't do it anymore. You just can't do it the way I did it because economically speaking, it's different. Structurally speaking, it's different. You have to be much more entrepreneurial, uh, whereas you know, many of us of my generation, we were not really entrepreneurial in terms of entering the music business. We looked for staff positions. We looked for established constructs to become a part of where now I believe it's much more entrepreneurial, where you kind of have to make your own opportunities. There aren't these structures that are willing to hire you or pay an adequate salary or invest in your ideas. Uh, you're, it's a startup, the startup of you, mm-hmm. finding ways to raise money, finding ways to survive, finding ways to work your way through the system. There's no one traditional route anymore. It's very entrepreneurial. It's very self-defined for each individual. You know, before this interview, we were um, we were talking about Aretha Franklin, and Joy was sharing that um, you all had talked about her in class and kind of the arc of her career. And the, the journey of it and the fact that there's ups and downs and you can you can make it and you cannot make it and your career can like emerge later in life. And I'm wondering, is there any artist that you've worked with that is a good example to look at the arc of someone's career and what that can look like in the music industry? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the modern day music industry is a bit of a mess, to be quite honest. It's very lopsided towards like the top few percent. So the model has changed. But if you take a look at one of the older bands that I worked with, which is Sonic Youth, like for four albums before I worked with them, they were in a downtown underground noise band that lived in the Lower East Side before it was cool to live in the Lower East Side. Now it's super cool to live in it. But then it was like, you know, why are you living in the Lower East Side? <laughs> it's kind of an abandoned neighborhood. So they're a band who toiled for years and years and years. And even in making an album like Daydream Nation, which was one of the albums I made with them, this is a record that really didn't make a lot of money, but put them in a good place for the future. It set them up to get a major label deal and have autonomy within that deal to then make records that were more commercially accepted. But they did have to go through years and years and years of this, I wouldn't say failure, but just a devotion to what they wanted to do. Well, it wasn't very lucrative. So that model still exists where people will work in a bit of a vacuum for years and years and years, and then climb out of that into 
a more uh, mainstream, you know, commercially viable space. And later on, when I worked with uh, J.D. Sampson and, and Kathleen and Johanna in a band called La Tigra, they were very sort of pragmatic about maintaining their independence, but making money and surviving. And they found the great balance of like holding on to their integrity, but not starving. Which business is more ruthless, music or academia? At its worst, I would have to say academia. <laughs> There's a great learning curve in academia. You got to know which battles to fight because some of them you just no matter how right you are, you will you will never win. I think that you would think that in the music business there'd be a tremendous amount of ego driving everything, but you know what, in academia, I think it's even worse. There's a need to be recognized as intelligent and intellectual, influential, that can only be satisfied through recognition because academia is not really the place where you go to earn money. So in the music business, you have these egos and you have this drive and you have this sort of showmanship. But over time, I think it mellows because by making money or being successful or influencing a style of music or genre of music, you've made your mark. And you can be a little bit comfortable about having made your contribution. And uh, uh, I don't see that in academia. I, I see in academia like this constant need to one-up the people around you and to stay relevant. Nick, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been so fun. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vane. Our executive producers are me along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. Special thanks to Noisy Music. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 
Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.